The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 34. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a sailor of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation kept doing this many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, they put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced alongside his, with his entire household that he believed in God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name's Aaron, and I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at uh, Coram Dale. I'm super excited to be with you all this morning, getting a chance to start a new series in the book of Philippians. And for me, Philippians is one of those books, maybe this, you can relate to this, is one of those books that maybe is familiar to you. There's often, you know, a few lines within the book that are quite memorable, you know, things about the peace of God surpassing understanding or to live as Christ, but to die is gain. For me, growing up, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture was Philippians 4.13. I'm sure many of you know that verse, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as, you know, a middle schooler, high schooler, that was my favorite verse. And what I would do is I would actually write the reference underneath the, the bill of my baseball hat. I love, used to love wearing baseball hats, still, still do. And I would have that verse kind of inscribed on my hat as a way of like pumping myself up, that I can do all things, which translation, I can hit a home run through Christ who strengthens me, <laughs> right? And so Philippians, you know, is one of those books where there's these memorable lines, but if we're not careful, it can be easy to sort of take these lines out of context and then just kind of use them in sort of our own lives, how we might want to do that. Instead of doing that, instead of kind of reading our own sort of like, you know, stuff or desires into the text, one of the things that we want to do is really just understand the context of Scripture, understand what the Lord is doing in this story, at, in this church 2,000 years ago, and then draw lessons from that for our lives. So what I want to do this morning is kind of just sit back for a moment, and let's time travel back 2,000 years ago. Imagine you live in the first century. It's A.D. 60, 61, and you live in the town of Philippi. It's a hot, arid climate, but thankfully you just live a few miles off the coast of the Aegean Sea, so thankfully an ocean breeze keeps things manageable for you. Philippi, again, your hometown is growing. For the past few decades, Romans from all over the empire are moving into this city. 
Philippi is buzzing with life. And in many ways, Philippi, because you are a Roman citizen, Philippi reminds you of Rome. The layout of the streets, the architecture, the Latin inscriptions on every street corner, it's Rome away from Rome. And you, as a Philippian, as a Roman citizen, are, are thankful to, to, to Caesar himself for all that he's done for you. I mean, Philippi, being a Roman colony, and you, a citizen of Rome, have all these benefits thanks to Caesar and how he gives you free land, tax breaks, everything seems to be going well for you because Caesar is the one you give your allegiance to. Caesar is the one who you wish his kingdom and empire would continue to expand. Caesar is the one you believe has brought peace not only to your family, but to the whole known world. Yet one day you begin to get wind of this group of 30 to 40 people gathering at this woman Lydia's house. They gather on Sunday nights and you begin to get wind of how eclectic and how strange this group is because you find out there's Lydia, who is this wealthy businesswoman. There's this demon, formerly demon-possessed slave girl. And then there's like this middle-class Roman jailer and his family. Like these are the kinds of people gathered. And never before have you heard of this kind of eclectic group gathering together. And so you're intrigued. In fact, the, the Roman jailer is the one who begins to invite you. Come check out what, what's going on on Sunday nights at Lydia's house. And so because you're somewhat intrigued with the group that's being gathered, you attend one Sunday evening. And at this gathering, they gather together to pray, to read from the ancient Jewish scriptures. They have a meal together, and they sing songs honoring this man, Jesus of Nazareth. But on this one particular night that you're there, one of the elders gets up and stands before the group in Lydia's house and says, hey, everybody, I have an important announcement to make. We've received a letter from Paul. And you're saying that you don't really know who Paul is, but you kind of have some vague idea because about 10 years ago, around 80, 49, or 50, Paul and a group of his friends came through Philippi and started this little gathering at Lydia's house. But here on this evening, one of the elders gets up and says, we've received a letter from Paul. And he begins to stand up and read the entire letter in one sitting. And the letter begins with this. Paul and Timothy, servants, or maybe better translated, slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints who are at Philippi, in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you. With the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. And immediately, just in those opening two lines... So many things are swirling in your head. The way that the letter to Philippians starts is a very traditional way letters in your culture would have started with the names of the people sending the letter at the very beginning. But what catches you, what kind of throws you off is how Paul and Timothy introduce themselves not as like noblemen or officials or elites, but as servants and slaves of King Jesus. What's this letter about? What's happening here? And as those opening lines go on, this letter is addressed to the saints, these holy ones. Now, saints is not just like, you know, these special class of people. The way that the Christians are using this language of saints is everyone who is in Christ Jesus. 
Everyone who is a part of this little gathering, they are saints, everyday people, like this demon-possessed girl, like this wealthy businesswoman, like this Roman jailer, saints in Christ Jesus. And as the letter goes on, your mind begins to still just kind of wonder and, and be amazed at all the things that this Paul is writing to this church. Now, why do I share that story with you? It's kind of a creative, imaginative way of thinking about what it would have been like perhaps 2,000 years ago to hear this letter that we're going to spend the next rest of the calendar year each Sunday working through line by line. And for this morning, what I want to do is ask kind of a very simple question in many ways, and it's, it's simply this. Who are these saints in Philippi? Who are these people that Paul is writing this letter to? And for that, we really don't have to do much imagining because we can, we're going to go back to Acts 16 and hear the story of how this church began, how the Holy Spirit birthed this church through men like Paul and the extraordinary impact it's had even to this day. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to Acts 16. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. And the one thing that I hope you walk out here of, of this gathering with is this very simple idea. As we look at Acts 16, we're going to see this very simple idea, and it's simply this. God changes the world one person at a time. You and I are sitting here this morning, embarking on, I don't know, 12, 13, 14-week journey through the book of Philippians, an ancient letter written 2,000 years ago that has had massive impact on our culture and our world. And that change, that transformation, began 2,000 years ago, one person at a time. So let's pick it up in verse 6. The text reads this. And when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, there's a lot of geographic names out there. So let's throw the, that map on the screen and kind of get oriented to what exactly, so Luke's writing this, what exactly Luke is tracing for us. See, as we kind of re read those few verses, that blue line going from your right to left is the journey of Paul's second missionary journey in, in about AD 60 to 61. And so Paul, we're told, has traveled with his companions through Galatia and Phrygia, but the Holy Spirit forbade him to go up into Asia, to the east, and into Bithynia, to the, to the northeast section of that map there. And what's interesting is that Paul, you know, we're going to talk about why you know, the Holy Spirit was saying no there, but just for the geographic purposes here, Paul continues with his team to Troas, or to Mycenae, then to Troas, and eventually is going to end up in Philippi, which is circled in red there. Now, from about Galatia in that region there, all the way to Philippi, is roughly four to 500 mile journey. I mean, just kind of think about that. It's like almost, that's basically the equivalent to like Omaha to Oklahoma City or Omaha to Tulsa. I mean, how would you like to be like on a journey, walking with your friends on foot for that long? In a pretty hot and arid climate, mind you. 
But this is the journey that Paul and his companions went on. But I want you to notice a few things here in the passage, here in those first uh, handful of verses. Notice at the very end, verse 10, the text tells us that they concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel in Philippi or in, into Macedonia. That this is their goal, Paul's goal, Paul's aim, the team's aim, to preach the good news of Jesus into Macedonia. Even before that, Paul and his team, they, there, there seems to be this sense that Paul is extremely excited and he's eager to go preach the gospel out into Asia, into the Bithynia. And for whatever reason, the text tells us that the Holy Spirit, two times, forbid Paul and did not allow Paul to go into those regions. Now, you have to kind of get the context a little bit because think about it. Acts 16 comes after Acts 15, Right? And Acts 15 is the story of the Jerusalem Council where all the church leaders are gathering together and they make the decision and they have clarity that Gentile Christians do not have to accept Jewish customs like Sabbath and circumcision in order to become part of the people of God. And so on the heels of that, it seems as if Paul is extremely excited to go preach that good news into all these Gentile parts of the known world. And yet for whatever reason... The Holy Spirit says no two times as Paul seeks to initially go east and into the north regions of where he's at. Now, if you're Paul, how are you feeling in that moment? I mean, what was that like for Paul? What was it like for the Holy Spirit to forbid Paul to go into those regions? We don't really know. And perhaps that's part of the narrative, that's part of the invitation for us is to Maybe see ourselves in there a little bit. I mean, how many of you have been in a moment in your life where you've wanted to do something good for the Lord? You've wanted to, as best you can tell, your motives are right, you're, you're, in, you're in a healthy spot, and you're seeking to serve the Lord with your life. You're seeking to, to help someone. You're seeking to, whatever the case might be. And for whatever reason, it seems like God isn't opening any doors for that. Things don't seem to be lining up. It's in those moments, I think there's this invitation to trust that even though the Spirit might be saying no in this one particular moment, that does not mean, Acts 16 tells us, that God is not still with Paul and that God is not still even leading Paul. Notice, Paul gets that vision, right? The man from Macedonia, come over here and help us. Paul himself gets the vision. And of course, the text tells us the vision happens at night, right? I mean, spooky, scary, I don't know what that would be like, right? But the vision happens at night. Paul gets the vision. But I want you to also notice that there's this plural language that we concluded that we were meant to go preach the gospel into Macedonia. Paul's not pulling the like, hey, God told me card, this is what we're going to do now. No, we concluded, the text tells us, that the Spirit was inviting us to go into Macedonia. It's important to see that discernment is often be is best, I would say, done communally. Hearing from the Lord, hearing the Lord's voice, hearing how the Spirit might lead us into those opportunities is best done together and in community. And for us, thinking about just this little section here, 
Maybe just asking that question. Where is the Holy Spirit leading you by saying no? Or where has the Holy Spirit maybe led you in your life by saying no? You know, this past Thursday, my wife and I celebrated 10 years of marriage. We had some friends in town, and they were able to watch our kids for us, and we got a night away. It was just an amazing time. And thinking about 10 years, I mean, that feels like a lot for me at least. A decade, right? You know, a decade from now, our oldest is going to be 18, so like just time is so funny like that. But 10 years of, of marriage has been wonderful, and there's been a lot of trials and difficulties. And one of the things that has been kind of a, a thread throughout our marriage has been the times where we've thought the Lord was leading us one direction, that the Spirit was leading us over here, but then it ended up being a closed door or a no. You know, many of you know our story of our church plant that we attempted to start in California, and that was kind of one of the prime examples there. But what about for your life? Where is or where has God led you? Where has the Spirit led you by saying no? Maybe there's an invitation there to, to recognize that, you know what, God is not absent when he says no. God has not abandoned you when he is closing the door or saying no. In fact, perhaps, and maybe Acts 16 is encouraging us to see that it's actually in those moments God is leading us into something new. And perhaps we can't see, I know we've been there ourselves where it's hard to see what that next thing is. But friends, be assured that a passage like Acts 16, the Spirit is wanting us to see that he often leads his people by saying no in certain areas to lead us into something new. And as the story continues, take a look at what happens. As we begin to see how God is going to change the world one person at a time, verse 11, so, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. Let's pause right there. There's a couple pictures I have of the ancient ruins of Philippi. Here's kind of the, the main amphitheater that you could go visit today. And you can see, like, you know, that could hold quite a bit of people. There's some of the ancient ruins of, of the, the ancient city that Paul would have more than likely walked around himself. And I show you that to remind you that this is a real city in real time and space and history, and we're reading about real people, that these events really happened. And Luke, the writer, tells us here in the book of Acts that Philippi, is a Roman colony. And this is really important, especially as we get into the letter itself. And what this really kind of alerts us to is that if you were a Roman citizen in a Roman colony, you received all of these benefits. Pretty much free land, tax-free exemptions, and it was a very sort of kind of patriotic city. The kind of the backstory of, of, of Philippi kind of dates back to about 40, 45 years before the birth of Jesus. Julius Caesar was assassinated by Brucius and Gaius in about 44 BC. And that kind of led to this outbreak of civil war throughout the Roman Empire. But Octavian and Mark Anthony, Julius Caesar's heirs, killed their father's assassins and brought peace, if you're a Roman, to the, to the known world and founded Philippi as a Roman colony. And Octavian became, became Caesar Augustus, who you read about in Luke chapter 2, 
of our Bibles in the Christmas story. And so all that to say is that Philippi is filled with Romans who are deeply loyal to Caesar and to the empire. It's filled with people who are just so in love with all of the things that Caesar has done to bring peace and stability to Rome and to the world. And so maybe to fast forward just a little bit, when you read a line like, but your citizenship is in heaven, man, that's going to ruffle some feathers a little bit if you're a Roman in first century Philippi. But we keep going on here in the story. We remained in this city, Philippi, some days. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gates to the riverside where we suppose there was a place of prayer. Now, a couple times throughout Acts 16, we're going to see that phrase, a place of prayer. And what this sort of alerts us to is that often Paul's practice would have been to go to a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, and begin to kind of talk and preach the gospel to those in the synagogue because he was able to kind of have like an entry point, you know, talking about the Old Testament, showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. But here in Philippi, there doesn't seem to be a Jewish synagogue. Tradition has it that it would require 10 men, 10 Jewish men, to have a synagogue. But for whatever reason, Philippi doesn't seem to have that. And so they go to the place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, and from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now that phrase, worshiper of God, is kind of technical language in the Bible for someone who basically has some sort of idea of about the God of Israel, but hasn't fully converted to the Jewish practices. It's kind of someone we might say in our language, religious, has a religious background, but isn't really converted to the God of the Bible. This is why we often say here at Quorum Deo, religious people need saving too. Religious people, someone who maybe has or has grown up in the church, who maybe kind of is somewhat familiar with the things of what it means to come on a Sunday morning and do the thing here, even those kinds of people need the gospel. Lydia, we're told, is a seller of purple goods from Thyatira. Commentators will tell you that this means she more than likely was very wealthy, very affluent. And so here what we're going to see is that the gospel even comes to people who are religious, who are wealthy, and seem to kind of have it all, all together. But probably one of my favorite lines in all of this chapter is what we see next. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Remember, Paul and his team, they're preaching the gospel. They're the ones having these conversations with, this, with these women at this place of prayer. But Luke reminds us, the Spirit reminds us that it's the Lord who opened up Lydia's heart. Friends, we have a role to play, for sure. It's a privilege to join in the mission of God. But when it's all said and done, it is only by the Spirit of God, by the Lord himself, to open up people's hearts to the message of the gospel. And in many ways, that should be freeing, right? It's not up to you in this sense of having the best arguments, of having a polished presentation, or knowing all the facts, or even knowing your Bible extremely well. All of that, sure, yes, is important, but at the end of the day, it's the Lord who opens up hearts. It's the Lord himself who saves. 
And maybe another question is we kind of slow down and think about this section. Is who in your life are you praying that the Lord opens up their heart? Who in your sphere of influence, family, friends, coworkers, classmates, roommates, are you praying that, Lord, open their hearts to pay attention to the message of the gospel? Who has the Lord placed in your life where, yeah, you do have opportunities to share and discuss and even pray with, but when it's all said and done, you recognize, you know, Lord, you and you alone are the only one who can open up their heart. Maybe that's you this morning. That, Lord, you're, that, that you're here, and you maybe kind of see yourself here. That, hey, maybe I'm kind of familiar a little bit with this church religious thing. But the Lord really hasn't opened up your heart to the message of grace and the good news of the gospel. And I assume for many of us in this room that we have family members or friends or coworkers that we're praying for for years and years and years, maybe even decades. And we're tempted to believe the lie that salvation is not actually possible for that person. That God really isn't going to save that person in my family or that friend. But maybe Acts 16, by the power of the Spirit, is this invitation to consider, you know what? The Lord wants to open up their heart to the message of the gospel. Who is the Lord inviting you to pray for in that scenario? The story continues, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. So after the Lord opens up Lydia's heart, Lydia converts, becomes a follower of Jesus. Lydia hosts Paul and the team at her house, but it seems as a few days have passed, and they're going back to the place of prayer. It's like Paul's staying in the city of Philippi. He still has work to do, and it says in verse 16, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. That's actually technically the language of the, the python spirit, literally the snake spirit. Now, if you're reading that, like think about snake, Bible, right? It's Satan's at work in this person's life and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. It seems as if this spirit that's working in this slave girl is able to foretell the future, and it's bringing her owners much profit, much gain. She followed Paul, and I love this verse 17. She followed Paul and us crying out, these servants are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, if you kind of do like your your word studies there, that, that phrase, Most High God, it's similar going back to the Gospels where often demons would come and they would accuse Jesus. We know who you are. You're the Holy One of the Most High. Which is true theologically. But they don't actually really believe it, right? And these, this spirit is accusing through this woman, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And apparently, this kept happening for a little bit. To the point where I love this line. It says, Paul, look at this, verse 18. Paul having become what? Greatly annoyed. Paul's like you and me, right? Sometimes we put Paul on this pedestal of like, he's just this super apostle. He, you know, walks two feet off the ground and he's glowing all the time. 
right? Paul got annoyed that this woman with the demon-possessed spirit is like maybe following them. I don't exactly know how this would work, but like is repeating the same thing over and over and over again. And Paul's like, I had enough. Be gone with you, demon. And so maybe it's not like the best motive to heal someone, but you know, it gets the job done. But I, I say that to maybe kind of pose another question to you. Because on one level, yeah, we, we, we can read this and more than likely Paul is, you know, just annoyed in kind of like that human sense that we often are annoyed by. But I want you to also see that Paul is, is annoyed to the point of wanting to see someone set free. Because think about it like this. What annoys you? What things in your day-to-day life kind of throw you for a loop. You know, it might not necessarily be a bad thing or a sinful thing, but, you know, there's just certain things in, that happen, you know, in my life that, you know, they're just not fun to deal with. You know, when someone's driving too slow or, you know, like, you know, your favorite sports team doesn't do well, like it's the same thing week in and week out. Like, you kind of get annoyed with stuff like that, right? Right? And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making fun of you guys. With, I'm not, <laughs> I, I, I say that as Seattle, just struggling, you know, so I was unintentional. <laughs> Come back. Um, <laughs> but seriously, though, think about it. What, what really annoys you? And are you ever brought to a place where the things that annoy you drive you to want to see people set free and come to know the living God. Because I think that seems to be what's happening with Paul. Paul is disturbed, that word can be translated. Paul is annoyed to the point where he actually wants to redirect that to see someone set free by the power of the Spirit, to have new life. The story continues These people who own this slave girl are upset because they no longer are able to gain their profit or have their their way of of getting money from her ability to tell the future. They they accuse Paul and and their team and Paul's team of these men are disturbing our city, which there's so much we could just say even right there, of how the effects of the gospel are not just privatized. They actually are meant to affect culture. And that when the gospel is being spread, when God's kingdom is being spread, yes, one person at a time, that has ripple effects out into society. These men, they're being accused, are disturbing our city and advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. There we begin to see the clash of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Rome, a theme that will kind of be a red thread throughout the letter of the Philipp- to the Philippians. And what ends up happening is that Paul and his team, Silas in particular, they get thrown in prison. And we come to maybe one of the more famous scenes in all of the book of Acts, and maybe the New Testament at large, when Paul and Silas are in prison, verse 25, and they're singing hymns and praying to God. I love this, this moment, this scene. We have a, a little children's book that we read with our kids fairly often. It's one of those uh, short stories that just basically focuses on this particular story. And it has these, from the Good Book Company, I don't know if you've seen that one, it's like, you know, singing praises at midnight or something, I can't remember the exact title. But it's just a beautiful story of, of how in inviting kids to see how even in a moment of desperation and unfair imprisonment, Paul and Silas 
are singing hymns and praising God. And Paul and Silas are secure in the fact that even though that things maybe aren't turning out the way that they had thought, they're still able to sing hymns and praise God. Now, as they're doing this, you kind of know how the story goes. We heard it read. There's this earthquake that, that rumbles throughout the prison. I think we have a picture even of the, of the prison here. That this is believed to have been the site of where Paul was imprisoned in this story of the book of Acts. And it's potentially here that this massive earthquake happens. Paul's and Silas's chains are more or less set free there, have the ability to go and be released. And in this moment, the jailer recognizes that, you know what, my prisoners are going to escape. And in that culture, as a Roman jailer, if your prisoners escaped on your watch, it was more honorable for you to take your own life rather than allowing those prisoners to escape with you being there. And so the jailer is about to kill himself, but Paul and Silas tell him, hold on, well, don't, don't do that. Don't not harm yourself, for we are still here. And we kind of see how the story progresses is that it's in that moment that the jailer recognizes something distinct and different about Paul and Silas. That why would they use their potential freedom and, and, and set that freedom aside in order to remain in prison? And the jailer asked that question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I love Paul's simple response. It's almost like, sometimes I I wish that this would happen more often, right? Like just kind of it's on the tee for you. You know, you're trying to pray, you're praying for someone to come to faith and know the gospel, and it would be just awesome, right? If people just ask, what must I do to be saved? Right? Super easy. Paul's response, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you will be saved. And the jailer and his family are baptized. And I love how the story tells us that the jailer takes the time to wash and clean up the wounds of Paul and Silas. See, friends, the gospel transforms people. Lydia welcomed people into her home. The demon-possessed girl was no longer under oppression and slavery. The jailer becomes hospitable and a servant, all because of the work of the Spirit and the power of the gospel going forth. The gospel transforms people's lives and their actions. And think about what Paul is doing, Paul and Silas. Paul could have escaped prison. He could have been set free and just done away with the jailer. But what's so interesting, I find this fascinating because of how the book of Philippians is going to be, ended up being written, is that Paul takes what freedom he could have had and lays that freedom aside to serve the Philippian jailer. Does that sound like someone we know? Many scholars argue that the central passage to the book of Philippians is found in chapter 2. 2 verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, or have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be attained or hold on to or to grasp for, but laid that aside. The passage goes on to say he humbled himself, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, referring obviously to Jesus. And it's this beautiful example how Jesus laid aside his freedom, laid aside his privileges to serve and to save us, his people. 
And Paul, here in Philippi, is demonstrating that same Christ-like posture to the Philippian jailer. That Paul has been an individual who has so received the gospel that it's penetrated his mind and his heart that he is demonstrating that same Christ-like posture to the Philippian jailer, laying aside his freedom, laying aside his privilege in order to help serve and to care for those around him. Friends, the gospel is not just words to be recited or propositions to believe. It is that for sure. But God changes the world one person at a time through those who believe the gospel and then live that gospel life out. That cross-shaped, Jesus-shaped pattern. Christ did that for us. Laying aside his privileges, laying aside his rights in order to seek and to save us who were once lost. So friends, as we close this morning, I just want to say three quick things as a way of kind of summarizing and recapping kind of what we've talked about here. Three things. The gospel, number one, is for everyone. Two, you have a role to play. And number three, imagine what God wants to do. A quick word on each. Number one, The gospel is for everyone. Think about, again, this story. You have Lydia, wealthy businesswoman. Things are all put together for her, more or less. She's, quote, unquote, religious. She's the God worshiper, the God fearer. Then you also have this demon-possessed or demonized slave girl, the lowest of the society. Someone who more than likely would have been under oppression for many, many years. And in the middle, you have the Roman jailer, someone who's probably ultra-patriotic, ultra-loyal to Rome. All three of these people make up more or less what we might say the core team of this church plant in Philippi. The gospel is for everyone. See, friends, don't believe the lie that, you know, there's a certain type of personality or a certain type of person that's more predisposed to Christianity. Don't believe the lie that there's certain kinds of people that are more easily, quote-unquote, converted than those kinds of people over there. No, if Acts 16 tells us anything, it tells us the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, comes into any kind of person's life, no matter their story, no matter what they have done, or no matter what's been done to them, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is for everyone. But number two, you have a role to play. The book of Acts in general, and Acts 16 in particular, reminds us that Paul is, or God is working through someone like Paul. Through Paul being annoyed, through Paul being told no, through the the, the, the talking and the praying and the singing of Paul and Silas. God, by the power of his spirit, is working through these humans, these imperfect, flawed humans. And I hope we see that even through the book of Philippians, through these next few months, and in particular this morning in the book of Acts, that you and me, we are invited to participate in this story of God changing the world one person at a time, one prayer at a time, one conversation at a time, one gathering at a time. The Lord works through simple means, through ordinary people, to advance his mission forward. 
And last but not least, imagine what God will do. You know, I began this sermon this morning inviting you to imagine what it would have been like 2,000 years ago. And I want to end in a similar posture, but imagining what God, not what God did 2,000 years ago, but imagine what God wants to do right here, right now. Friends, do you believe that we worship and serve and gather in the name of the same God who we just read about in Acts 16? That the same God who opened up Lydia's heart, the same God who freed a demonized woman, the same God who allowed an earthquake to happen and converted a Roman jailer, the same God who even said no to the Apostle Paul but still led him by the, by the power of the Spirit, that's the same God we worship this morning. That's the same God who loves you and gave his life for you. Imagine what God wants to do in your life today. Imagine what God wants to do in the lives of the people that you love and care about in your life. That no one is beyond the saving power of Jesus. No story is beyond the saving grace of his redemption. And that, friends, we gather and we worship and we pray in faith and in hope that the same God who started this church with this eclectic group of people is the same God who is at, in our midst this morning, who we gather in whose name this morning, anticipating, filling, filling us with hope that we might see a movement like this in our day that we might see Lydia's and those oppressed and enslaved and those who are just minding their own business, participating in the culture, come to know the one true living God. And so friends, the, really the only response is to turn to him and ask, Holy Spirit, come. Do that same work in my life, do that same work in this church, do that same work in our city, in our region. So, Father, we ask in your name, we ask, Lord, that you would help. You would draw near to those this morning who maybe are far off or maybe who are near and not totally sure about Jesus, the things of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts. And I pray for those who have loved ones or friends or coworkers who seem like it's just utterly impossible for you to save. God, I pray that you would fill those people with hope and with courage. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do and continue to work in our midst, Lord, that the same work that you did in Philippi, would be, we would experience and see something similar in our day. People coming to faith in you, New churches started, lives transformed one person at a time. And so we cry out asking for your help, recognizing that apart from you, we can do nothing. We pray and ask these things in your name. Amen.